Well, good morning. It was a May evening in Ohio, and it was raining a lot. And uh, Mr. and Mrs. Hammond decided to better go downstairs and check the basement wall. It had some cracks, and they were checking to see if the water was coming in. It was. They're starting to push stuff to the middle of the basement floor. Maybe you've done that uh, this spring. And while they're doing that, the wall suddenly collapses. And a torrent of muddy water comes pouring into the basement, and it fills up in a hurry. And before they know it, it's eight feet deep, and they are sure they're going to drown. And they scream out for help. A neighbor comes in a truck that was stuck in the water uh, outside their house, and, and they come with an axe and a saw, and they pull the, the kitchen carpet back, and they hack holes in the floor, and just in time reach down through and grab Mr. and Mrs. Hammond and pull them out to safety. Whew. Uh, on the Livet blog this week, maybe you saw it, it said there's nothing quite like a near-death incident in one's life. Your world comes to a screeching halt, but you're still conscious. You know instinctively that you're about to meet your maker and you're not ready. And in that moment, you desperately cry out, I'll do anything you want, God. Just get me out of this. Have you been there? It's exactly Jonah's dilemma at the end of Jonah chapter 1. Would you take your device or your Bible and open up to the book of Jonah? You might need to use your table of contents. The, the kids in children's church had to use the table of contents to find where Jonah is. It's a short book. End of chapter 1, Jonah has been tossed overboard, and the raging storm, when he hits the water, the storm grows calm. The sailors on the ship, they are safe now. But Jonah is sinking toward death by drowning. His assignment was from God, direct, clear. I want you to go to that great city, Nineveh, and preach against it. Trouble was, these were the bad guys. How bad were they? Well, their cruelty, their brutality, it was famous. Their tactics included burning, skinning, decapitating, impaling. Uh, here's a picture. This is what the king had. On, th this is from the palace at Nineveh. Uh, they found it. It's wall carving. Those guys are impaled. Uh, they loved decapitating. Uh, the next one, also from the wall of the palace, you can see the pile of heads on the left. That was the Assyrians. Nice guy. Uh, they would take defeated enemies, soldiers, chop off their hands and their feet. That's just, the, uh, they would take in a defeated city, burn the children alive. These are the Assyrians. Uh, go to Nineveh and speak to that great city. Fearing God might actually spare the Ninevites. Eager for the bad guys to get what they deserve. Jonah goes the opposite direction. Kip showed us the map last week where he's called to go to Nineveh, 550 miles. Instead, he hops on a ship on Joppa to go to Tarshish, opposite direction, as far as he can go to the end of the world as it was known then. Forget it, God. I'm out of here. Ever feel fed up with the bad guys? School shootings. Latest one Friday. Oh, then there was one Friday night at a prom or graduation ceremony. 
outside Houston, Santa Fe High School. Uh, ever fed up? Child abuse, pornography, serial killings, terrorism, anarchy, dictatorships. The world seems to be overflowing, violence, bad stuff. Ever, ever want God to just speed up the judgment timetable? Want God to settle the score? Surely those people don't deserve forgiveness. So what if God called you to take, to the, take the gospel to the worst of the offenders? What would you do? How would you respond? That's what the book of Jonah is all about. It's a short book. Kip started us last week into the series, chapter one, and called it Running From Grace. He reminded us of the purpose of the book. This book is in our Bible. You always have to ask, okay, why is this here? What's God want us to learn? And it's there to remind Israel God's a gracious God who cares about other nations, not just the Israelites. Even the most unthinkable ISIS-like people group, the Assyrians, God cares about them? Yep. Uh, the purpose of the book is it's kind of a slap. It's, uh, we're going to see in the next two weeks. It's a backdoor slap in the face to Israel. Israel uh, had been called on to repent for over 200 years now and was refusing. What was going to happen in Nineveh when they're called to repent? Uh, Kip said, reaching out to those who seem to be beyond grace is just like God. That's what he does. So his, uh, his offer to withhold judgment of the Ninevites, it's a proof that God is saying and teaching us no one is beyond grace. He told us to, last week, Kip said, see yourself as a Ninevite, someone in need of grace, because we all are. Uh, about the book of Jonah. It's different than most books of prophecy. It's one of the minor prophets. It just means not that it's not important, but it's short. As a minor prophet, most of the prophetic books in our Bible have lots of information about what the prophet was to announce and teach and proclaim. Not Jonah. One verse. One verse on what he said. The whole book's about Jonah and what's going on in his heart. And that makes it a great lesson for us. Uh, this is 760 B.C. Ooh, 760, what's going on then? Well, King David, then King Solomon, the, the, the heyday, the golden days for, for the Israelites, 1,000 B.C. We're now 240 years later. There's been a string, all of them, evil, bad kings at, to Jonah's time. 760 B.C. This book shakes up any ideas we have about how God ought to do things. The bad guys are supposed to get smoked, right? He loves us best, right? There are themes in Jonah. Uh, I hope you're using the Bible reading guide uh, that's been put together for the series. Really helpful. Uh, it's got passages from Jonah and related passages the themes we're seeing pop up, and you'll see it over the next couple of weeks, grace. Grace, God rescuing and forgiving when it's undeserved. And that includes Jonah and the Ninevites, rescuing when it's undeserved. 
Um, God's plan of salvation wasn't just for Jews. And no Old Testament book shows that like Jonah does. Another theme in Jonah that keeps popping up, ethnic prejudices. There were good reasons for the Israelites to fear and dislike the Assyrians. Good reasons for them to to wish, I hope God smokes the Assyrians, not hope he forgives them. This book challenges our ethnic prejudices. And the theme of uh, restoration after disobedience. We need the book of Jonah because just like us, uh, he gets, he knows what God wants him to do, but he disobeys. And so this is a great book for what happens when I struggle to do what God wants me to do. I disobey. Is there restoration? Is there rescue after that? Jonah's drowning, end of chapter one. His death is certain, but God. Uh, Look with me, end of chapter one, verse 17. But the Lord, when you see uh, my translation uh, has capital letters, Lord, it just, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's God's name. But Yahweh. We like to say around here, uh, things are, aren't what you wish they were. There's trouble. There's crisis. There's struggle. But God. And verse 17 starts with those two words. Jonah's drowning. But God. But Yahweh provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. He had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. He's sinking to the bottom, maybe already unconscious for lack of breathing. And God has prepared a great fish to swallow him up at just the right moment. Half drowned before he swallowed. He now finds himself in darkness. He's in uh, all-encompassing, enveloping darkness. Is he in Sheol, the place of the dead, or is he somewhere else? Did Jonah deserve to be rescued? Nope. Do you and I? Nope. But that's what a God of grace does. Do those who are disobedient to God's commands deserve rescue? Nope. But that's what grace does. He prepares a great fish. He provided a great fish. Uh, So tradition has made this the whale, right? Jonah and the whale. We don't know what it was. The Hebrew word is just a big fish. Uh, And it swallows Jonah. Could this really have happened? Hmm. Uh, Some of you have been to the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. Hanging from the ceiling is a whale they captured 30,000 pound giant sperm whale they uh, when they captured it found inside it a 1500 pound fish in its belly hmm. could this really have happened some of you might know the story of James Bartley uh, 1891 James Bartley signed up for a uh, to be a, a shipmate on a whaling ship so they're down off the coast of Argentina. This is his first trip. And they harpoon a giant sperm whale. And uh, as they're trying to get that whale under control, the boats that they're in uh, capsize. James Bartley disappears. The shipmates assumed he's drowned. A uh, day and a half later, they're all harvesting the whale. And they get to its stomach. And in its stomach, unconscious but still alive is... James Bartley. 
and it becomes instantly a sensation uh, in the media across the world at that point, in newspapers. James Bartley, the real-life Jonah, here's what they wrote about him when that happened and what he looked like. His whole appearance was changed by the ordeal for his neck, face, and hands, which had been exposed to the whale's gastric juices, were permanently bleached to a livid whiteness. And what do you think he smelled like? And guess how many more whaling expeditions he went on after that one? Zero! (laughs) I think that was pretty smart. I'm done with that career. (laughs) Could this really have happened? Remember, what did Jesus say? They asked him for a sign, and Jesus says, "Uh, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah, who spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. So if this was only myth or fable, you're going to have to explain why did Jesus take it as fact. And why did Jesus use it as foreshadowing? Three days, three nights in the belly of the fish for Jonah was the foreshadowing of three days, three nights in the grave for Jesus before his resurrection. That's why he says, I'll give you the sign of Jonah, talking about what was coming for himself. Could this really have happened? Yep. But beware making the message of the book about the great fish. This book is about Jonah's heart and about God's grace. One person said, I was so obsessed with what was going on inside the whale that I missed seeing the drama inside Jonah. We can't make that mistake. Now, why does it say, verse 17, three days, three nights? Hebrew worldview, it took you three days to get to Sheol after death, three days to get to the point, place of the dead. So that one clicked with them. Oh, three days and three nights, of course. It's saying he's as good as dead. Jonah, though, because of the fish, is saved from a drowning death. Why? Totally undeserved grace of God. We've just been singing about it. Unbelievable. Amazing. Can't be earned. Though he'd run away from God, God had not abandoned him. So what's he do inside the fish? Start of chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. I guess so. Uh, How many of you, your minds go to, uh, this is from me as a kid. Do your minds go to Pinocchio? (laughs) Uh, Disney actually used this. Here's the, uh, I think we got the image. Yeah, uh, they're Geppetto and Pinocchio, they're on the raft, and along comes Monstro the whale, and he swallows them up, and then they're inside the whale. I think we got a picture of that next. Yeah, <laughs> inside the whale, trying to, I don't think it had that much space to it, uh, but Jonah's there, and he prays, and he prays a psalm. What's a psalm? Poem, put to music. It's a thanksgiving psalm from Jonah. So the next nine verses are this uh, poem, this song, this psalm of thanksgiving from Jonah, thankful for being rescued from a drowning death. It has three stanzas to it. Uh, Let's look at it, the next nine verses. Here's what he prayed. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. 
uh, literally from the belly of Sheol, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight. And the first stanza ends with, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. First stanza is all about, he is in trouble. He is drowning. He is in the waters. He's as good as dead. He says, the second stanza, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. That, what's the root of the mountain? Bottom of the ocean. He's saying, I'm down at the bottom. The earth beneath barred me in forever. There was no way out. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. End of the first stanza and end of the second stanza, he talks about the temple. Then his third stanza is praise. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. There are two things that really help us uh, understand this psalm tucked in the middle of the story of Jonah, uh, this prayer from him. Every phrase in those nine verses is found in the book of Psalms. What, did Jonah sit there with a concordance and, okay, I'll take that phrase and put it here? And it, no, you are called upon to uh, come up with a prayer of thanksgiving. Spur the moment. What words are you going to use? Probably songs you've sung, maybe ones you just sang, uh, maybe prayers that you've heard. And I think that's exactly what happens with Jonah. Prophet. Was he familiar with what went on in the temple? He's referred to it in verse 7 and, and verse 4 already. Uh, and around the temple, they're using psalms of thanksgiving. So he's in the whale. What are the words he's going to use for a, spur of the, a, a song of thanksgiving? Ones that he knew from the psalms. These expressions. The second thing that's really helpful in understanding what he's doing uh, as he sings out praise to God is a Hebrew worldview. There's some things here that we'd understand better if we were Jewish. Uh, one is the idea of the deep and the waters and the swirling and the, the depths and the word the pit. All of those things uh, to the, the Hebrew worldview, the chaos of the waters and the deep. Uh, this is before scuba tanks or snorkels. This means it's all wording that is pointing to death in trouble, no hope. Another thing in Hebrew worldview is this whole thing of uh, from the belly of Sheol I called out. Uh, the, the Hebrew concept of death, the, the place of the dead, where you went when you died was you went to Sheol. You descended to Sheol. Uh, think of it as holding tank. You're there until the time of judgment. And so this idea of I'm here, but I'm here stuck, barred in forever. There's no escape. I'm 
I'm away from God and without hope. That it was in that moment that he cries out to God and there is rescue. I think it's helpful to, uh, to think of the poem with a series of R's. So on your outline, you've got uh, what Jonah reaped, what he remembered, what he realized, and then how he responded. First six verses are what he reaped. You look at the phrases there, distress, depths of the grave, in the deep, the waters, the breakers swept over me, banished. What he, what he reaped was a taste of death. His disobedience is being tossed in the water, his sinking to the bottom, all of it. He gets a little taste of death and Sheol and hell. What did he remember? Verse 7, my life is ebbing away and I remembered you, Lord. I remembered you, Yahweh, and my prayer rose to you. In the water, the belly, the fish, he got a taste of what death and separation from God was like. And it was there that he turned back to God. Did he? Or is this just a foxhole prayer? God, get me out of this and I'll do anything. But his heart's not really changed. Spoiler alert, by the time we get to chapter 4, you're still going to be asking that question. Was his heart really changed, or was this foxhole prayer? One of the interesting things about this book is it leaves us asking that question about Jonah. The picture's still blurry. It's not clear what went on in his heart. I think that's to make us look at our own. Is it a one-and-done change, or do I have things I've got to deal with with God? Has it really changed my heart, or is there more change to take place? The one thing that is clear by the time we get to the end of Jonah, everything about God and His grace is crystal clear. He gives it to those who are undeserving. And then what Jonah realized, verse 8, my favorite verse in the book. Maybe it'll become yours. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. What did Jonah realize? Ah, there's a choice. Everyone is either moving toward grace or going away from it. Last week, Kip called it running from grace. Now, is Jonah going to choose to go back to grace? He could see where his rebellion, his choice to not listen to God had gotten him. And he didn't like it. He didn't want to die after all. So he realizes, I've got to hang on to God's grace. I've got to turn around and run back toward God's grace. His grace. The word, the verse here is interesting. Those who cling to, uh, guard, hang on to, uh, want to protect or pay attention to. Worthless idols. Uh, empty Nothingnesses is the word. It's not even as distinguished as a, a little idol statue or the, the things, the values, the things we choose over God. Those who want to hang on to nothing, nothings, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And the grace is not... Um, 
We know that word now, New Testament, but the word is the Old Testament word for God's love and his commitment to his people, the way he was going to treat his people, regardless of, it, it's hesed, regardless of their performance, his commitment to them was unconditional, loyal, covenant love. You go after the worthless idols, you forfeit the hesed that could be yours. And Jonah realized that's exactly what he had done. He'd made a trade that was unwise, trade in God's grace and God's call to go after his own plan. His own opinions had become his idol. We now as New Testament folks know the word as grace, and grace is God's commitment to us. It's repair and restoration is possible after I've disobeyed and run away. We know it is the core of how salvation happens. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace, New Testament word for that same Old Testament idea of unconditional, God's choice of how he's going to relate to his people. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I hope you know that passage. Our salvation is based on our performance or what we can earn or what we deserve. Our salvation is based on what he has chosen to do for us in Jesus Christ. And so how do we make that ours? By faith. It is by grace through faith. One person wrote, if you come to God admitting you deserve nothing from him except his judgment and condemnation, that's Jonah, that's you and me. If you place your faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly became your sacrifice, then he saves you. Amazing grace. Jonah realized it's either the empty idols, the worthless nothingnesses, or it's God's grace. You and I are always moving toward grace, running toward it, or running away from it. We're always moving toward grace or refusing it, forfeiting it. Uh, some of you know, um, some of you know the TV show, the game show. Let's make a deal. Okay, it looks like this now. Okay, it's fancy. Didn't always look like that. Let's make a deal. Have you ever watched it? Uh, people come. They dress up goofy. They bring worthless stuff to the show. It looks like this. They come dressed up goofy, and what are they going to trade? And they hand to the show, to the MC, something worthless and get something very valuable in return. And then the rest of the show is with that person. Now, you've got that nice uh, vacation trip, but what do you think's behind door number two? This is what the show originally looked like uh, back in 1963 when I watched it. Um, a long time ago. You sure you don't want what's behind the other door? That's verse 8. We bring our sin, our worthlessness, our junk to God, and we trade it for his grace is salvation. But then life throws at us or we get tempted by, but what about what's behind door number two? What about that idol? You, maybe that'll satisfy your soul more than God's grace. You want to trade? And Jonah's come to the realization, those who cling, those who do that make a bad trade. Those who cling to worthless idols have forfeited the grace the hesed that could be theirs. Don't make that deal. 
God extends grace. It's there for the taking, but idolatry can sway a person, make them think, oh, maybe there's something better. The Livet blog this week said, uh, when you and I are hanging on to our worthless idols, no matter what or who they are, there's no room for the grace, the mercy, the hope, the forgiveness, or the hesed of God in our lives. As long as we're worshiping our own false gods, the idols we've made or chosen for ourselves, we can't worship God, and He can't save us by His grace. His has said, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. He got it. He figured it out. Have you? You and I are always moving toward grace or forfeiting it. I want to move toward it. Uh, how did he respond? Verse 9, he worshiped. We just spent the last month talking about worship as a response to the truth of who God is. He gets it, verse 8. What's he do? Verse 9, responds. Offers a song of thanksgiving, says, I'll offer a sacrifice. I'll make good on my vow. Been a lot of discussion about what's that mean? What vow? And it probably means, uh, okay, spoiler alert number two, I'll do what God asked me to do. He'll call me to go to Nineveh, and this time I'll listen and I'll do it. I'll make good on my vow. Why? Because salvation comes from the Lord. The way it's said in Acts chapter 4 is this. I think, did I put it there? Oh, maybe I didn't. Acts chapter 4. Salvation is found in no one else besides, who's referring to? Yeah, Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Pretty good wedding sermon yesterday, huh? Did you hear any of it? Probably as clear as the gospel's ever been uh, in a royal wedding. Amazing. Salvation comes from the Lord. And Jonah responds with his worship. Well, how's it end? Verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, literally, he spoke to the fish, and Jonah is vomited onto dry land. Oh, that's a nice way to end the message. <laughs> but I bet he was relieved. And after three days of undigested Jonah, I bet the fish was relieved. So what do we do with, uh, we're going to leave Jonah there on the beach, pick him back up next week and see what he does. But what do we do with God's grace? Running to or forfeiting? Uh, so last week, Kip called it uh, running from grace, Jonah. This week's all about chapter 2 is running back to grace. How do you do that? My mind this week went to the example of the Apostle Paul who had plenty of stuff in the past that made him feel ashamed and unworthy and undeserving of God's grace and his salvation. Is that you? Stuff in the past that makes you think, I can't really go back to grace. There's been too much. What did Paul do? 
That's where we got the phrase, face forward. See, you can't run toward grace facing backward at what you did in the past in your disobedience and rebellion and running away from God. What do you have to do? You have to turn around in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Is Jonah turning back around facing forward? No, I'm going back toward God and what he's called me to do. What did Paul have in his background? Persecuting, oppressing the first Christians. Uh, he calls himself a murderer, the chief of sinners. He says, I'm the least deserving of God's grace. But he also understood that God's grace had changed him. And so he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. The changes God's grace has made in you and me should be obvious and evident. The effect of it should shape how you interact with your family this afternoon, your friends, how you go back to work tomorrow morning. His grace to me was not without effect. Do you need this morning to stop running from grace? the bad stuff of the past, the disobedience, and turn back and say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Let's pray. God, we need your grace for salvation and for walking through uh, the challenges of every day. We, uh, our hearts respond to Jonah because we recognize we have disobeyed and had our times to run away or dislike your plan. And you graciously call us back, allow us to, to taste grace and new beginnings and fresh starts. Pray for each of us here today that your grace would not be without effect in us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.